Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with California-based jazz percussionist, composer, and band leader Ian Dogel. He opened up at length about his new 2022 CD, Quinta Essentia, which is his ninth release. This album evokes the presence of an element that transcends the four common physical elements of earth, water, air, and fire, and exists in its purest form. He has spent more than 40 years creating music that defies category and knows no boundaries. While in high school outside of Philadelphia, PA, he was captivated by an album cover that called to him to explore the music inside. It was Bitches Brew by Miles Davis. We get into all of this, the beginning, middle, and now, and much more. Enjoy this interview. Let's go ahead, and before we get into your newest album, I want to know, how did you survive COVID, this period of lockdown and uh, just not knowing what was going on as an artist? How did you make it through, and how did the process subsequently change the way that you approach not only music, but your life? Well, COVID's been difficult for me. Um, I, in addition to being a musician, I'm a professional copywriter and web designer. And um, uh, the pandemic severely affected, like so many others, the musical side, uh, because uh, in addition to performing, I am also a music educator, not so much in terms of private students, but uh, going into schools and uh, leading improvisational bands. Uh, so I direct bands, I uh, compose all the music that they play, and I like to expose, uh, and you could look at these as jazz bands, sort of, uh, but I really like to get students exposed to music from other parts of the world, and so uh, I uh, you know, like to expose them to music from the Middle East and from Africa and from South America and Indonesia, for example, and have them play scales and rhythms from other parts of the world, but improvise. And all of that got shut down on a dime, like in March of 2020. And I've never been able to get back in since then. So it really uh, put a, a, a severe crimp, not only in the on the performance side, but it uh, really just uh, uh, really eliminated the music education side. And I'm still have not been able to really get that back up and going. So in that sense, the pandemic persists for me in a um, in a challenging way. Um, and one of the reasons I actually really loved doing the Quinta Essentia project is, is that it all took place during the pandemic. Uh, if we, well, if we even think of it as being over at this point, which it's really not. Uh, and, uh, so it did affect me very much, uh, in terms of being able to survive on the musical side. I still, you know, uh, the writing and the web design is a remote scenario, so I'm able to uh, have that continue, but um, uh, very challenging, you know, psychically on, on many levels. It was, uh, um, you know, I, I don't know really what else to say about it, except that it's, it, you know, I, I haven't fully recovered from it, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to get an overview. So with the brand new album, you said was kind of an outgrowth of that time period, Talk to me about how it feels to be able to have music now. I know that the pandemic and 
maybe the disease isn't over, but as far as like the world waking up, that's definitely happening. So how does this release feel right now in particular to have it happen? Well, uh, it is, it, it's sort of like a reemergence uh, for me because um, since I wasn't able to perform live, I was able to do real, like one concert in the middle of the pandemic in, I guess it was July of 2021, when there was a little ebb uh, and, it, it, you know, people were starting to get out for the first time, but um, it was, um, let me just think how I want to, uh, I want to say this, uh, the getting musicians into the studio and, and really just kind of re revving up the engines again and having this creative process going, it was a, a lifesaver, uh, <laughs> for me on a, I guess on a on a psychic level to uh because you know having the experience of collaborating with musicians in a live context was gone and so this was a chance to uh kind of integrate my uh jazz meets world music approach to mu uh you know approach to uh, uh what I'm putting out there and uh um it was um uh, very uplifting to just be able to get uh, get into the studio and have that creative process and um, and a lot of this music I hadn't put out a record in ten years and so you know the other thing was it seemed like the appropriate time to reengage um, uh, because I had you know it's like I'm not getting any younger and it was really important to take all these musical ideas that have been percolating inside of me and get them out while I still have the energy and the bandwidth to, uh, to do it. And, you know, so, uh, so, the, so it was uh, very fortuitous just to be able to go into a wonderful studio in Oakland, California and bring in these great musicians and play music that is, as you know from listening to listening to it, it's not music that is constrained by any particular genre. It crosses into a lot of different arenas, you know, bringing in influences from North Africa, and in this case, you know, doing a special tribute uh, piece to the Ukrainian people, and uh, and you know, doing a um, an unusual combination for cello and kalimba in a Ukrainian Dorian mode. And um, so um, anyway, it, it was a lifesaver for me uh, because without that project, I'm not sure how I, how I would have gotten through this whole period because, you know, without the education and the live performance, it's like this was it and it had been percolating for 10 years. And um, so, for example, uh, the piece that I, my tribute piece to Randy Weston, The Gathering, which, a uh, little story behind that, uh, and was one of the reasons I wanted to really get this out at this time. Uh, in 2016, I did a tribute concert uh, to Randy Weston called Afro Weston. And uh, one of the musicians involved in the project uh, or on that piece is Yasir Chadli, who is Ganawa from Morocco. And Yasir was very much involved with Randy's album entitled The Spirits of Our Ancestors in 1991. 
And when I reached out to Randy to let him know I was doing this performance, and I, had ri- I write a lot of grants. And uh, so I had written a grant for this, and I said, you know, I want to do your music that really is very uh, tied into, uh, you know, the your African roots. So this was not about doing high fly or doing, you know, his pieces that were most uh, most well known, but really getting into some of the pieces that really drew from the Ganawa or the West African side. And uh, and when Randy heard that Yasir was a part of that um, equation. He became very interested in what I was doing because he, you know, it's like he was really uh, fascinated that I was really into the Ganawa music and as he'd learned later also music from Nubia. And uh, so he started sending me handwritten charts and was very involved in the process. And um, I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but it's an interesting story. Uh, and, um, and so then when we did the concert, in I think it was like April of 2016, um, the same night we did the concert, he was doing a concert at Carnegie Hall um, for his 90th birthday with his African Rhythms uh, Ensemble. And he announced my concert to his, uh, to, to his uh, attendees, and the set list that he played that night was largely the same tunes that I played in my concert. Wow, that's wonderful. Randy is a wonderful uh, person. I, I've just always been in awe of his music and how he thinks and how he rolls, how he did roll. He's a wonderful person. Yeah, one of the things I think, I was thinking about this on a walk the other day, that musicians who have gravitas and, and who don't expend wasted motion in their music and the two and another musician whom whom I got to know a little bit over the years as well was Youssef Latif and uh, and I think of those two musicians and as musicians that I've admired for decades and uh, in fact Youssef was one of the first musicians I ever listened to playing what we call jazz conveniently um, uh, who have that gravitas and they can play just a couple of notes and they penetrate your soul. And Randy is the same way. He can hit something on his left hand down low on the piano and just let it ring. And that's all I need to hear for a while. While the rest of the musicians are playing, Randy just, there, there was something just so profound and um, impactful Um about his music and the and the fact because I love music from all the cultures across the planet and, and that goes back to my early ethnomusicology studies at Brown University. Um, the, the, all the indigenous music from Africa that he brought in, in the way that he integrated that into what is otherwise thought of as jazz is um, uh, is, is very important to me because I've been advocating for my whole adult life for the integration and connection of um, of music from around the world, the melting pot of cultures uh, as it integrates with jazz, because jazz was born out of the melting pot. And I feel sometimes that we we might lose that a little bit and people want to box, try to box jazz in a little bit into some sort of tight um, – 
uh, just you know categorize it. And one of the things to me is I look at jazz or creative improvised music in general is that you have this whole um, universe of of possibilities with scales and rhythms and uh, instruments from other cultures that you can bring into uh, you know bring into the into the jazz equation and create these wonderful hybrids. And people like Yousef was doing it in the in the fifties, uh, and Randy was, was you know, and Sun Ra was doing it in the fifties and sixties, and uh, and so that really speaks to me is this honoring of all the musical traditions, and there's no reason why jazz should um, not embrace that, and I would love to see more programmers embrace the multicultural influence on jazz because it's just so fascinating and I think it would really expand listeners' horizons. So speaking of that multifaceted approach and the listeners, what are you hoping the listener gets from this new album? Well, you know, as I put on the title, that's a great question, by the way, as I put on the title of the record, um, you know, about, uh, you know, music for healing and uplift, I mean, that's, ultimately, that's my goal. There's nothing really... um, uh, what do I put? There's nothing real intellectual that I'm trying to put out there about it. I, I really, you know, other than honoring, you know, the jazz tradition and, you know, two traditions of music cultures from around the world and how they integrate with jazz, the real underlying uh, purpose for me is to try to energize and uplift and expand and hope I can take people on a journey that opens some new portals uh, for them as they listen to this music and, you know, and share it with as many people as possible. And it's really that basic for me. Uh, and, you know, and also, and I'm, I'm sure this is true for every musician that you talk to, every musician comes at their, uh, you know, comes at their music with a certain viewpoint that is unique to them. I mean, we're all derivative of lots of things, you know, uh, as we put our concept together. But I think all of us are trying to take something that's deep inside of us and and share it with as many people as possible. And uh, and for me, it really is it, it really is uh, that basic. And at the same time, as I said. If I can get, you know, just take people, it's not about impressing people. It's, it's about just trying to take them on a journey and have them travel somewhere that they haven't been before. And if I can reach a few people that way, that makes me feel good about, you know, everything I put into this uh, to get it out there. You know, and speaking of a journey, it all begins for us somewhere. What was the first live show that you ever saw? That, that really inspired you and made you want to live your life to be a musician? Ooh, boy. Uh, I'd have to go way back um, and think about that one uh, because I know, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think that, um, it's easy, you know, it's, it's funny. It's easier for me to think about recordings I listen to than than the live shows that uh, influenced me uh, to be a musician. And I'm just trying to think of the, like, early shows. Like, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, 
And in Philadelphia, you know, Sun Ra, uh, with the Sun Ra Orchestra was living in the Germantown section, and Marshall Allen is still leading the band and still living in the, his father's house uh, in in Germantown. And I know, or seeing Sun Ra early on, and seeing Pharaoh Sanders early on. Seeing, I remember seeing Miles Davis uh, uh, at Paul's Mall in Boston in in the early seventies, um, and. So th- some of, some of those performances, and if I really had a chance to really like reflect right now, I'm sure other uh, other performances. I saw here here are two of them. Here, I, okay. So there was a place in West Philadelphia, a funky little place called the Aqua Lounge, not too far from the University of Pennsylvania campus. And uh, in '72, '73, yeah, '72, I saw two concerts there that really. I'd have to say were as impactful as anything I can think of. One was Youssef Latif, and I had already gotten the blue Youssef Latif, if you're familiar with that recording. I think it was from 1968. Um, and I was really just uh, very, very intoxicated by his approach to the music and bringing in other cultures. And there might have been six people in the audience, and I was there for, you know, four hours feeling like I was just in a living room listening to Yusef and sitting six feet away from him and just completely mesmerized. The other one, which was a packed house in the same place, but an un- unforgettable concert, was Herbie Hancock's M1 Dishi Band. And that group, I believe, put out three recordings, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I, that's my favorite Herbie Hancock group uh, that he ever had. And this was the pre-Headhunters Band. And uh, and I was just so taken with again there was a, there was a lot of African influence uh, in you know in the music and it was hard you know it's really you couldn't categorize that music it's not like it's just a traditional jazz recording this music was really reaching into new places uh, that maybe Bitches Brew had sort of opened the door to a lot of this, but uh, this was really going into some new directions. And I love that, um, what was it, Eddie Henderson, Benny Maupin, and Julian Priester, when they weren't playing their horns, they were all playing percussion instruments. And so the whole band would go on to this real African African percussion kind of thing for long periods of time. And uh, and I wasn't even playing percussion at that point. I was studying jazz guitar at this point, so I hadn't even picked up any percussion instruments. But... Uh, I was so smitten by what I was hearing at that time. And uh, so, you know, I would say from the standpoint of live performances, that would be, uh, you know, those would be a few of them. Now, from and I'll just very quickly go to this because you didn't ask this, but tangentially, the recordings that really got me going and really got me thinking about, uh, you know, going into um, down the path of creating music the rest of my life that I could share with others was, uh, well, Bitches Brew was the most powerful record for me. That And I bought that record right after it came out in 1970, uh, well, it was like 69, 70, uh, because of the album cover, not because I had any clue what was actually on the record. I saw the cover, and I said, oh, I want this. And then I could never stop listening to it. And um, and then, you know, early, and it was interesting, because I had been listening to a lot of the rock bands who were coming through Philly and playing at the Spectrum, where all the sports teams were playing, 
for the first time. And then I heard the modern jazz quartet and I heard um, Youssef Latif and then I heard Coltrane and I heard Miles. And within like a year, I went from listening to like Jethro Tull and Led Zeppelin to listening to Albert Eiler and Archie Shepp and uh, Cecil Taylor and Sun Ra. And I did this 180 and then very shortly thereafter was exposed to Chinese and Indian classical music. And like, that was it. <laughs> that was it. It's like, I, you know, I was on my way. I think after uh, uh, I had heard, you know, the um, innovative jazz players and then the indigenous music from around the world, I go, I think that's the path. Some, I want to go down a path that incorporates elements of both of these, uh, you know, directions. So you've been at this for a long time, for 40 years. What has been the key to you not only, you know, being relevant, but evolving and developing and looking forward to this profession of both musician and education for all these years? Yeah, it has been, uh, it has been a long road, and it's been a choppy road. Um, you know, I think people who aren't musicians or who aren't artists, because I think this is true for people in all the different disciplines, um, it can be a very um, isolated, uh, lonely road, you know, that you go down, you know, because you have to develop a bit of a thick skin to do this sort of thing, and you have to believe really deeply in your art form and your voice, uh, regardless of whatever affirmation or lack of affirmation uh, that you get, uh, you know, throughout the years. And I know when I started my first group, when I moved to California in 1978, at that point to go to Stanford University to ostensibly work on a Ph.D. in classics, uh, so I was studying Latin and ancient Greek, um, I uh, formed a band, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. All the musicians in the band were way more uh, further developed at that point than I was. And uh, trial and error uh, was really kind of the, you know, I was composing, trying to compose tunes and playing some other, you know, people's tunes. People in the band were writing music, and uh, and I was very unsure of myself. And uh, it was... Um, it, it, it was really kind of a bumpy, bumpy stretch there in the early days when I put my first few recordings out uh, to really feel more centered and confident and feel like I was, you know, this was something that I was going to continue doing the rest of my life. And it was really a gradual process where I think I had to learn to relax, actually, because when you're feeling very uncertain, you tend to be a little jittery and indecisive in what you're doing. And uh, and I, I guess that's true for just about everything. But uh, over time, I just became a little more relaxed and more assured and feeling that whatever response I got from the outside, it's like I was just going to sort of let the chips roll wherever they did and just believe that this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to... Uh, take this path that I've, uh, 
that I've gone down all these years and bringing in all the multicultural music influences and and uh, and playing all these instruments from Africa, the Middle East, and South America, and doing the combinations of instruments that are rarely heard together, and uh, and. And just feeling like it's okay, whatever happens with each recording, whatever happens with each live performance, you know, I celebrate the um, collaborative efforts with all these fellow musician adventurers and, uh, and consider that a blessing unto itself. And if there are some good things that happen, opportunities that open up, uh, after putting recordings out or doing live performances or even those wonderful experiences working w with students, that's gravy for me uh, at this point because my expectations have certainly been tempered from my 20s and 30s when I saw, you know, uh, you know, it was more about getting exposure and hoping that certain things would open up. And, you know, at this point, it's like it's no longer about that. It's like it really is about just creating with wonderful musicians and having the, those ecstatic experiences when we're live or in the studio. And, uh, and then fortunately through people like yourself who might resonate with the music when you hear it, sharing it with their listeners and just hope that, um, you know, we can uplift people with it. So, everyone out there has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately, you live your life. You have a perception of you. Who do you think you are? Wow. <laughs> that's, a re that's a challenging question. Uh, it's like, uh, um, who do I think I am? Can you be more specific with that question? Well, it's all about perception. I mean, your family's going to see you in one light. Your friends will see you in another light. Your, you know, colleagues, students, those that get your music, you, you, you cast all these different lights out, but ultimately you're the one in control of what you are, your aura, who you are. So just very simply put, who do you think you are? I just, you know what, I think, I, I'll tell you how I think of myself. I think of myself as a vessel through which some vision is flowing through me that I don't, I don't really take credit for it. It's like something has just flown through me, uh, is flowing through me, and I feel, uh, you know, very humbled by having whatever this gift is that, that I have that I, I can share with other people. And really, I just look at myself as somebody who's here to, um, you know, and I say this is sort of redundant because I said this early on, but really I'm here to just uh, try to uplift people and try to take them to new places and try to um, expand their horizons and open up new pathways for them. And I don't really look at it from an egotistical standpoint. I've really one of the things I've learned over many years and through many disappointments in this journey is the more I can take the ego out of it, the more I can just be as authentic as I can be uh, with, this music, with this music. And um, so I don't know if this really answers your question because it's a really challenging question uh, to answer. And um, uh, so 
And I, I, I frankly, I don't spend much time thinking about that. So uh, I apologize if I didn't really articulate that very clearly because uh, that's something I might have to ruminate on for a few hours before I could really have a, uh, you know, kind of a clear answer to that. You know, it's more of a kind of a cerebral guttural response to this. I think sometimes it kind of comes across as something that, you know, requires a lot. But I think simplicity with the answer to this is usually the most poignant. So I think you you hit it right on the head. I think I think you had a great answer. Um, and, and that was it. I, I saved the hot seat question for last. So thank you for opening up about the music, your life and music. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much uh, for inviting me and, uh, and for sharing the music um, with your listeners. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in Philadelphia, California, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Ian for his time, music, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on either Spotify or iTunes. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.